Welcome to the attachment point. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. The only recurring podcast dedicated to insurance careers, insurtech startups, and insurance current events. Your hosts are Carly Burnham, Tony Carnes, and Nick Lamparelli. You can find all of our podcasts, show notes, and insurance-related content at insnerds.com. Now, on to the show. Welcome to The Attachment Point. This is Tony Kenya, and co-hosting with me today is Nick Lamparelli. And we are very excited to have a true living legend in our industry. Today, we have Bill Wilson with us. Bill, how's it going? Doing great. Great to be with you guys. So thank you so much for joining us. Bill and I have been exchanging messages for a while, but uh, we hadn't had a chance to chat on the phone before. We would have met in Orlando this coming weekend. And the CPCU conference just got canceled. So, you know, the hurricane, unfortunately. So basically, the bit that we wanted to do today is just kind of talk about your career, uh, because you've had a very interesting one, and I want to see what we can learn from it, and we, we can all the lessons we can get to the next generation, and you should really pretty much write a big book about it, but we'll try to do what we can here in the next 45 minutes or so. I was kind of going over, over your background that you kind of went to school for insurance, I mean, engineering. So you've got a bachelor's in fire protection and safety engineering. So when you were getting that, were you thinking insurance or what kind of work were you preparing for? Well, I knew it was insurance related. I had, I tell you, when I was in high school, what my plan was, like I'd already registered at a, a different university and had a good friend who was a roommate. I was going to be a high school teacher. That was my plan. I wanted to teach math or science. And then uh, a scholarship program came along. And I, to tell you the truth, the guy that came, he met with the, if you're in the top 10% of our high school graduating class, this guy met with you. If you were interested, he pitched the scholarship. And I felt sorry for him because nobody was interested in it. So I said, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, I'll apply for it. And th this is like in the summertime for the fall semester. Well, I, I ended up, I, I got the scholarship. I got into, I went to Illinois Institute of Technology. I got in the school. And the next thing I know, my parents are dropping me off in Chicago and leaving me. I've never you know, spent more than a few nights away from home. But that's how I got into it. It was a scholarship offer. I really had no knowledge of fire protection engineering. I actually had no interest in fire protection engineering. But I was interested in somebody paying me to get a Bachelor of Science degree. So that's why I went. I worked for ISO. Actually, this was pre-ISO, back in the days of regional rating bureaus and state inspection and rating bureaus. I worked for the Tennessee Inspection Bureau. My scholarship was through the Western Actuarial Bureau. And uh, so they, they were the sponsors of the scholarship. And those early pre-ISO, and ISO was formed in 1971. I went to college in 69. In those early days, ISO had two main functions. One was an advisory organization doing policy forms, rates, so forth, much of the things they do today. And they had a huge field service organization that inspected properties to set the insurance rates on them. This was pre-fire class rating days where 
virtually every commercial structure in America was inspected by ISO or its predecessors. So the engineering degree was to allow me to do HPR type properties, highly protected risk, like Factory Mutual at the time was the big insurer for. So I, I had to know hydraulics and special systems. I had to inspect aircraft hangars and chemical plants and all kinds of stuff like that. But that was that was my inroad into the insurance industry. I had no idea that ISO or that ISO was something different beforehand. And I'm, I'm kind of nerdy about the history of the insurance industry. So that is very interesting. Nick, did your history go, go back that far? I, I'm older than you. My history does go back uh, maybe a little bit okay. more. But yeah, I, I, I understood them to fill that function in insurance. Okay, so in 1971, ISO becomes one unified organism. At that point, all the separate bureaus of the Tennessee Bureau become part of of this national organization. So all of a sudden, you're all ISO employees, basically? Yeah, pretty pretty much. There there were some states that remained independent. I know uh, Washington State was one. Maybe at that time, North Carolina. There were were Mississippi. They maintained a state-run rating bureau. But most of the other organizations around the country all consolidated into this national advisory organization. In the early days, like in 69, ISO was more, or predecessors were more of a cartel than they were an advisory organization. Pretty much companies at that time used the bureau, as it was called, forms, and used their rates, competed mainly on things like service and innovative products, and not directly on price. So I remember one of my earliest experiences was the summer uh, that I worked after my freshman year in school and all the managers were running out the front door and they grabbed their hats and we had a dress code and you had to wear a hat. Uh, I've got a story about that. If we have time later, I'll tell you, but they grabbed their hats and their coats. They went running out. And I said, what's going on? They said, well, we heard uh, that USF&G, a company that no longer exists, was deviating off bureau rates and they're going to put a stop to it. Well, those days are gone and they Probably that, that might have been had antitrust implications at the time, but that's the way it was uh, back in those in those good old days. Bill, wasn't the original ISO conglomeration very controversial um, way back when? Wasn't doing what they do now from a regulatory standpoint? Didn't they? Didn't you guys face a lot of opposition that you would act like a cartel, pretty much? Yeah, I, I, to some extent, I think so. Now, now I was here. I was. I was a you know, 18 years old, right out of uh, high school. So I'd, at that point in my career, I didn't get involved in those kinds of issues. I'd heard it later on that there was concern about antitrust issues and if we, that the bureaus had enough control already. And if it was a national thing, it would just get worse. And it's, it's actually not worked that way at all. So when you first started, were there more people in your office that smoked and drank that than didn't smoke and didn't drink? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you go into the office in the, in the morning, it was like an opium den or something. Not, <laughs> not that I frequent opium dens, but uh, just smoke everywhere. Some of the, guy, the guys, the supervisors, their offices, you couldn't even breathe in. You know, those those were the days. That's the way it was at, at, at that time. And, yeah, there was uh, there was drinking and driving and all kinds of things going on back in those days. We and and uh, to make it even worse, we we didn't have uh, calculators in those days. We uh, this was pre think about computers and apps and you know technology today. Back then, we used comptometers. 
there were these big desk machines, metal machines, and if you wanted to multiply numbers, you put your fingers on certain keys and pressed them 30 times and pulled a crank, and you got the results of your computation. So uh, those are really the, the early, early days of the industry for most people today. So you started kind of in the engineering division, or, or I, I don't know, uh, the survey division, or uh, yeah. actually going to look at risk. So later on, you moved into management. So what, what was your path within ISO to growing into management? What, what, what did that path look like during the 19 years you were there? Well, I, I, worked, I worked in the field from, from 1973 to 1980, and I did it. I started out doing uh, the property inspections, and I got into what they call public fire protection. People in the industry know that, that most cities and, and certain areas are rated a protection class 1 through 10, and I did that for about five years. And uh, then I got it. ISO started a, a management development program countrywide. I think the first class had about 20 candidates in it. And I went through formal management training and so forth. I, I think my title was project analyst, which meant that I was a gopher for the state managers. But uh, that's that's part of the learning process. And then ISO went through a corporate restructuring in, I think it was about 1982, between 80 and 82, where they closed down a lot of offices and restructured the entire organization and it happened, uh, I, I worked for the Tennessee branch, and we, we survived the cut. So I, at that point, I became a, a branch manager, and our existing manager was made a regional vice president. So that's how I got into management. I got into management around uh, 81, 82, and was in management at ISO through uh, 1988, working out of Tennessee and out of a, an Atlanta regional office and frequently turning down transfer requests or opportunities in New York City and Detroit and San Francisco and some other cities. So that's, that's my management experience. It is very interesting that you are able to stay in the Nashville area. It seems that most longtime insurance professionals we talked to have moved around a lot. Did you give up a lot of opportunities, basically, in order to stay in Nashville? Well, you know, I, I'll tell you that I, I knew a lot of people that didn't want to move when they were offered certain opportunities with carriers. And as a result, the opportunities dried up. I mean, their, their careers went nowhere. But to, to ISO's credit, they never held, uh, held that against me that I'd turned down multiple transfers to the New York home office or, or to some of these other offices. And uh, it just never was a situation that I was comfortable with. So, uh, you know, yeah, I probably thought my career would have taken a different path if I had gone to the home office and for better or for worse, I don't know, but I, I have no regrets. I've, I've loved every minute of my career and I'm still enjoying it. Hey, Bill, let's get down to brass tacks. When Tony told me you were going to come on to the show, all I kept thinking about was you have such an incredible cross-section of history, and we're moving into this period of time where technology is really becoming aggressive in its insertion into the business model. I was wondering if you could talk about a lot of the major changes that you've seen since you've gotten into insurance. Are there things on the top of your head as you scan back through your really illustrative career where you can look back and say, you know, these were the big moments. Here's where the big changes occurred in insurance that were really, you know, earth shattering, really transformative in the industry itself. 
Well, you know, it's it, it's probably harder for me to do that because I've lived it. It's like, you know, when you live, the changes, it, they happen so slowly and so so progressively that they don't seem to be that big a deal. When you, when you look back at timelines, have you ever seen timelines for technology and so forth? It, it looks like there were dramatic shifts at different points in time. But when I, when I think back, I don't see really a whole lot of transformative change until really to pretty recently. And that's when this, probably I'd say the last five years, when there's been a lot of attempts at disruption and on the premise that insurance is a commodity. Apparently, everybody thinks there is so much money to be made in the insurance industry that they want a piece of the action. And very few of them, I think, even understand the fundamentals of what the industry is all about, why we're here, what our mission is, and so forth. And uh, that it's really not as easy a business as you might think. And I think Google found that out even the way they tried to enter the industry, not not directly, but in, in the manner they did with the comparative rating thing, that it's not an easy industry to, to penetrate if you really understand it. So, you know, looking over the years, things, you know, have changed, but, you know, not any more than any other industry that I can think of. You know, the impact that cell phones have made on us just from a communication standpoint or, you know, taking 20 different devices and putting them into one little thing you can hold in your hand from from GPSs to to email and, you know, all of the information that's available today that wasn't before. Because you used to, my first paper I ever wrote, or first article was 1982 or 81 in the CPCU journal. It was called The Underwriting Cycle and Investment Income. So I guess if there's been a change, it's there is no longer an underwriting cycle. There used to be a pretty consistent seven-year cycle of profitability, then crashing, then profitability, then crashing. But when I wrote that article, the way that I researched it was I had to go to libraries. I had to contact the Ohio State University uh, library and ask the librarians to help me look for certain information. Today, I can do all of that right from my home in, in a matter of minutes as far as identifying a lot of the information. So uh, just just that that aspect of it, since we are in information and the data business, it's just so much easier to get it. But the downside is because there's so much information, distinguishing the good from the bad is the hard part. Well, the good stuff comes from insurance commentary, from INS nerds, from Ermi. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. You had a question. What's wrong with making an insurance company more like a tech company? What's wrong with giving the customer everything that they're asking for? Well, I've used the analogy before, and I've caught flat for it, but I'll, I'll use it again. And that's I go back to when my, uh, I have a millennial son, and uh, when he was a few years old, he would have happily, if I gave him the choice, lived on a diet of chicken nuggets and gummy bears he didn't know any better. He didn't know that it was bad for them. And, and the consumers are that way too. They're, I, I, they're ignorant. I don't say that in a derogatory manner. It's just that they don't, they don't know the industry. We got people that have worked in the industry for 20 years that still don't understand the industry. So we can't expect consumers. If consumers really could just go online and figure this all out for themselves, then why do why do regulators require that agents be licensed? If they go to school, they take exams, they have to do continuing education, but it's fine for the average consumer to make all of these decisions on their own. From a practical standpoint, they simply can't. 
And I, 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 I write, as you know, I write a lot about the lemonades and the slices and, and some of the, the startups. And, uh, and I do it because hardly anybody else is. I know you, you have, Nick. I've read a lot of your stuff. Uh, but nobody's challenging their understanding of the industry and what they're doing by letting the customer run the show. And it's one thing, and let me diverge for a second to say that I don't consider myself a technophobe. I love technology. When I when calculators finally came out in the 1970s, I was the first one to shell out $150 to be able to add, subtract, multiply, divide by punching a button instead of cranking a, a 50 pound machine on my desk. Uh, I had an iPod as soon as they came out. I think I still have five iPods going back to the original one. Uh, computers. I bought a personal computer before the IBM computer came out and uh, learned to program it overnight at my kitchen table to play a tic-tac-toe game and uh, and took it apart to see how it worked and that kind of stuff. So I, I love technology, but I realize that it's a tool. It's, it's, uh, it's something I use to make me do what I want to do better than what I could before. So I'm not against technology. I'm just against the, the misuse of technology. And I worry about uh, the whole thing with big data and, and those kinds of issues that, that the big data will not be vetted properly so that, that, that it's applied in a correct manner that's, that's fair to everybody. Well, I don't know yeah. if I answered your question, but I. Oh, you did. You you did, and I, I'd like to follow up on that because, uh, or or concur at least. Um, you know, it, it's it's one of my central arguments, and my my career has been predominantly Nat Cat focused. So I, I always I always think from that. I come in from that angle when I'm when I'm seeing uh, problems. When I'm looking at solutions, and you're right. If if the consumer if you, all you had to do was just throw up a website and just kind of lay out for the consumer, um, you know, a, a, a buying process, then people in Houston would buy flood insurance and people in California would buy earthquake insurance. But they make hor- they make horrible decisions, and then society has to go in afterwards and mop it up. And I I agree with you. I I just think there's. There's a limit there. Of course, the question I originally asked you was facetious because I, I we're both coming from the the same uh, the same area on that. But uh, the it's not that the consumer is ignorant; they are. They're not stupid though. It's um, it's upon. I, I think it's we need better salespeople. Um, we need we need to do better as an industry. And you can't just do that by throwing up a website and then saying, well, I, I have some artificial intelligence in the background and that will sell them flood insurance or that will sell them earthquake insurance. Like, good luck with that. That's, you know, that that's an impossibility. We need better salespeople. We need to do a better job. We need better products. And, um, you know, my, my frustration is that uh, a lot of technologists are coming in and they think that we're just a bunch of taxi drivers. And in my last article, or one of the last ones I wrote, you know, uh, insurance has some of the brightest minds in the world. You know, it, 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 we are in this spot, in this place in time, not because insurance people were stupid, was because there's, you know, a, a conglomeration of a lot of different forces. And sure, I think insurance companies got caught with their pants down when it came to 
uh, information technology, um, the digitization of of um, workflow and all things like that. But I've met a ton of insurance people, and now I'm getting to meet you. Insurance people are really smart. It, it, this has nothing to do with brains. It's just an infinitely complex problem. Yeah, and and the you know the the I guess the the image of the insurance agent is they're a middleman that they really don't add any value to the transaction. They're just there to to take their cut, which is always overestimated to how much the commissions are. That they just take that and they don't do anything for it. And, and you know one of the problems with consumers. The fundamental problem probably is they really don't understand what's at stake. They don't realize how easy it is that the exposures they're subject to and how in a split moment they can lose their home or they can they can have a liability claim that will not only take out take out most of their assets, uh, it, they could have their wages garnished for, for the next 20 years by the federal courts. And they don't understand what's at risk. And that's why I keep saying over and over and over repetitively that that buying an insurance is not like buying something on Amazon. You have, have the one click, uh, which incidentally, I, I find that since they went to one click, I spend about four times as much on Amazon as I did before. But <laughs> so, you know, maybe we should do one click flood insurance coverage just to make them buy it because it's so simple. But it's not the same. You can't. Uh, I had a had a, a a conversation on a LinkedIn chain uh, or thread with a, a younger fellow who was saying that consumers aren't stupid. And I said, I, I know that. I'm ignorant. I don't mean stupid. And he said, we there's all kinds of information on the internet that uh, we can research this for ourselves. Well, the problem is a big chunk of it, particularly at consumer websites, is absolutely wrong. Information on rental cars, should I buy the lost damage waiver? Uh, there's an article on Forbes website, and it's also on others, where it's the 15 insurance policies you don't need. One of them is flood insurance. And the lady that wrote it said, if your property if your property is never flooded before in your neighborhood, then it probably won't happen. So you really don't need flood insurance. People nice. read that and think, well, it's, it's on Forbes, so... They're a reputable company. They wouldn't put anything here that isn't true. They think it's it's worthless. Yeah, well, I, I'm an insurance professional, and I'm buying E&O insurance for my startup now. I have two quotes. One is half of the other, and I'm, like, shrugging my shoulders because, you know, of course, the one that's cheaper looks very appetizing, but I have to tell my partners it's got to be cheaper for a reason. Like we yeah. need to dig into this a little bit more, and there there are no non insurance professional well not not none but to the non insurance professional the amount of work that's required for them to truly do the research on the internet is is mind boggling and I don't think they can do it. Uh, I'm an insurance professional and I struggle doing it. So I you know it, I, I'm not sure what the answer is. I think there's going to be a lot more pressure. Um, from technology companies, uh, technologists that are coming in looking to quote unquote disrupt the industry, but uh, I, you know, I I think as an industry we should stand firm. We have, I think we have the the structure of the right business model. We just need to clean up our act a little bit and and do a little bit better job creating products and selling them. Yeah, well, we we've shot ourselves in the foot with 
if you look at the advertising that dominates the the media channels, it is almost all price focused. It, it's uh, and when I don't have to name names, we know who the advertisers are. Just price, 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 and, and to their credit, the companies like like Farmers and like Allstate and like Liberty who do have a series of commercials that that focus on coverage. Uh, we need more of that. We and we need to tell our story. We don't we don't tell our story. Uh, 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 what we'll hear on the news following the following uh, the Texas and Florida is uh, the people that got screwed by their insurance company. That'll that'll make the news. But the thousands and thousands of people that were agents showed up with checks. Uh, that kind of thing won't won't hit the airwaves and. If the media won't cover it, we have to we have to address that ourselves. We should be telling our story to everybody we possibly can. It's it's, it's so hard because we, we can we can get the word out, you know, amongst ourselves. We can use the tools like LinkedIn and and Twitter, uh, et cetera, to 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 get the word out uh, within the insurance community. But it's so hard to get the word beyond that. Um, yeah. it, the, the the price advertising drives me crazy. Uh, and it just keeps going on and on and on. It's and it, it's so rare. So, so uh, uh, later in your career, you you make kind of an, an interesting move, especially after having uh, you talked about how you wanted to be a teacher originally, and and the later half of your career, you kind of made a move towards that, towards the the education side. Uh, for, first with with uh, with Trusted Choice uh, of, of Tennessee. And then with with, with the the uh, I forget the name the Big Eye University. Um, I'm especially curious about Big Eye. How 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 did the Big Eye Virtual University come to happen? Well, I, I was with the uh, I left ISO in 1988, and I went to work for the the Big Eye Tennessee affiliate. They go by the the name of the insurers of Tennessee, and I worked there for 11 years as. Uh, Director of uh, Education and Technical Affairs. I, I wrote a lot, and I, I traveled around the state doing seminars. Then, when the when the internet came along, I saw a great opportunity to, for one, to get off the road. <laughs> so uh, that that was part of my motivation. But to to take all this information and put it at the fingertips of of our constituency, mainly independent agents. So I pitched the idea to the national big guy, which is which is based in Alexandria, Virginia, and they bought into it and offered to let me build this thing. So in uh, in '99, I, I never moved, but I, I moved from the, the the Tennessee affiliate to the national affiliate. And then I was there uh, building the virtual university and, and growing it for the next 17 years until I retired from the big guy in this past December. And, and uh, re retirement is is a uh, a a, uh, a relative term because you you've remained really really active uh, and, and you opened your your own uh, uh, blog. I don't know. I don't know. We call ours a blog. I mean, assuming you call it a blog with insurance commentary. Uh, uh -huh. So, so an insurance commentary. You're you're not replicating the will for, for, from what you did at Big Eye. This is really just your your own way to keep contributing, basically. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's uh, I can say things independently that I couldn't say as a staff member of the Big Eye because of <laughs> train of trade issues and stuff like that. But uh, 
but uh, and, and and there was uh, some some limitations on some of the topics I could talk about. I, I was not a, a policy maker for the big guy, and, and my opinions were not policy of the organization. But now I, I can do more opinion pieces. I started out to do the the blog really on coverage type issues, and I I kind of got away from that. So I I try every week to try to have a couple of coverage posts. Um, but, uh, I find that the, what, what gets the most traction are the opinion pieces. I get far more hits from people that read those posts and I'll put one, I put one on LinkedIn, uh, oh, well, it was, uh, insurance and paper towels was the name of it. It was a LinkedIn pulse article and I ended up getting like 8,000 views on, on that. And I, awesome. I had a, a lot of comments from people. So it's the opinion pieces that seem to really strike a chord and not not the coverage things, not that the coverage ones aren't aren't important. So so Bill, according to, to my quick math, you've been in the industry for about 48 years. Uh, yep. what, what's the proudest moment in uh, what, what is the, what, what are your proudest of in the, in, this, in this long insurance career? Boy, I don't know. Uh, never, never thought about that. Uh, gee, I don't know. I, I guess just it's just the uh, in, in, every time I hear from guys like you that that listen to what I have to say and appreciate it, even if you don't agree with all of it, you know, it's like I've I've got a million proudest moments because that's that's why I do what I do because I I think I have something to say, and when there are people. That are actually listening. The gratification is is uh, is more than I could ask for. So I don't know if there's any single moment that I could point to uh, in the industry. I've gotten some awards that 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 mean a lot to me. One was the uh, the Godheimer Malecki Award, which is given by uh, CPCU Society through the um, the uh, the expert witness interest group for people who've contributed to the industry educationally or, or as experts or whatever. So just being associated with the great Don Malecki was, was of the highest honor that I could imagine. And when I retired, right, right before I retired, the big guy gave me their, their lifetime achievement award, the Jeff Yates award, which is given to somebody who's not an agent, but who's been a contributor to the independent agency system. So those were, those were two things that I, I really was humbled by, but but again, it's just uh, just the fact that people aren't tired of listening to some old guy rant and rave. I, I told folks <laughs> some of my posts. I feel like I'm I'm the the old guy who's yelling for the disruptor kids to get out of his front yard. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> please, please keep sharing your knowledge because uh, as an industry, we desperately need to not lose it and encourage your your. Uh, Encourage the rest of your cohorts, uh, especially as they retire. Encourage them to to share their knowledge uh, in in any way they can, because we we need it. We 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 need to to learn from your experience. Uh, and what what advice do, do you have for for you know the the the, the twenty three twenty four year olds coming into the industry today? How how do we how do we follow in your in your footsteps? And I'm not twenty four myself. I'm I'm thirty four at this point. But how how do we follow in your in your footsteps? Well, I I, uh, I have the same message for for everybody, and that's that's pretty much no matter what you do in this industry, 
uh, first of all, never apologize for it because we know how important what we do is. And I think we should always remember that the, the number, our number one mission, no matter what you do, whether you're an underwriter, an agent, a, an adjuster, uh, or a technology person or whatever, our number one mission is to do whatever we can to, to keep individuals, families, and businesses from suffering serious or catastrophic financial losses. And risk management insurance is how this industry does that. And nobody does it better than we do. So I, we should always keep that in mind with every decision we make. Is is it in the best interest of the consumer and the business person? That's that's why I get on Lemonade's case every now and then when they talk about, you know, you can go in and remove your spouse from from the policy and you can cancel and you can do all this stuff. <laughs> well, that, you know, how is he said improves the customer experience? Well, uh, that's not really the customer experience. I understand where they're coming from, but uh, it, it's not in the best interest of, of consumers. And that's why we're here. So that's, that's my message to everybody. Never, never lose track of that, that important point. So Bill, uh, Bill, what, it, what hasn't changed that should change where, what are, what are, if you can uh, rack your brain, you know, what's, what are some of the things in insurance that um, are – I can think of a bunch of things that I still find very frustrating and I wish would change. But if there's like one or two things that uh, are still kind of dogging the industry um, and you would – you know, if you could point your finger at, what are, what are those things that the industry really needs to change and change uh, soon? Well, one would be, I, I wish we could take about 90% of all of the continuing education out there and put it in one place and let the North Koreans put their nukes to good use. <laughs> There's so much awful education. Now, it's funny, I, I, go on, uh, I go on some discussion boards online and I, there's one in particular, I, I won't name names, but the, uh, there's a lot of talk about where, where can I find the fastest CE or the cheapest CE or the easiest CE or I'm due tomorrow, where, where do I get this? And uh, that, that's, to me, that's uh, what uh, mandatory CE has become. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a money pit for, for agents and it's a, uh, it's a money maker for a lot of people, including sometimes regulators. Uh, and there's just so much bad stuff out there that it, it overshadows all of the good stuff. That's one of the things. Yeah, the, 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 the situation we see is, is, uh, is shameful. It, it seems that, that uh, most, uh, most of the CE out there is kind of designed so you start it on your web browser and walk away and, and truly not learn anything from it. And it, it's, it's, it's a giant waste. Yeah, I hear, I hear agents talking sometimes about, you know, all the customers want is the, the lowest price. And I tell them, I said, well, they, they just happen to like insurance the way you like your CE, you know, fast, cheap, and easy. That's how they want their insurance. So it's hard to complain about them when we are guilty of the same things our, ourselves. It's not, uh, it, it's, it shouldn't be fast, cheap, and easy because it's so important. You just came out with a book. We, we definitely need to, to talk about, about that. That's a little bit outside of insurance. But uh, so you're a big uh, quotations, a famous famous quotations guy. 
Uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about the two books that, that you've published in, in that area. Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, real quickly, 20 years ago, I, I love quotations. That when, my, when I graduated from college, my mother gave me a subscription to Reader's Digest. And, uh, and we, we came from modest means. Most people, when they graduate from college, get something more than a magazine subscription. But that's that's what I got. And uh, so I always loved the quotable quotes. And I collected quotations. I've read uh, dozens and dozens of books. So I, what I did was I, I started tearing out pages and keeping a file. And about 20 years ago, I put together the 1,500 of my favorite quotations into a book format and I indexed them and I cross-referenced them and I had an introductory section about how to how to use quotations in your speaking and writing. And then uh, I looked for a publisher and couldn't find one. I did uh, I sent galley copies to about 20 publishers. Uh, I got one that asked for a proposal, but I never never found anybody to publish it. In the meantime, I I, I sought information from professionals. And I ended up getting endorsements, even though I didn't ask for them, from for Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and other, at least at the time, well-known speakers. So I thought that would help me get a publisher, and it didn't. So I just self-published it. And uh, and it, it basically, it sat for years and years until recently when I retired and had more time, I put together what I call the, uh, uh, the 52 greatest things anybody ever said and why. So it's designed, it's the book I just put on Amazon. It's designed to be a weekly, you read a weekly quotation, then I have a short essay. Most of the essays are 300 to 600 words. They're not very long, but it's just, it's kind of a motivational thing. If you go to Amazon and search for 52 greatest, it'll, it's the first thing that will pop up. And, uh, and it, uh, it, if you look at the description, it shows you all of the 52 topics that are, are discussed. How how do I not know this, <laughs> Tony? I, 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 Bill, I try to lead all my articles with a quote that brings some kind That's of insight <laughs> to the articles, and and I, you know, I, I end up leaning heavily on the same rock bands, the same, you know, the same philosophers. Uh, but I, I, we will put this on the show notes. Um, I'm going to run out and buy it. Because uh, I was actually thinking recently, like how I'm I'm running out of quotes, like I, I keep going to the well to the same quotes, and I'm I'm starting to dry up. So thank you very much for that. That's uh that that'll be a good piece of uh, information for me to chew over and help me with my writing. Well, I just I, it just went uh, live on Amazon last week, so you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have heard about it. Um, and the I guess the Genzu State Knife portion of it is. For people that buy my 52 greatest books, they get a there's a link included that gives them a free download of the out of print book with 1500 quotations in it. So, uh, well, that's the one I want. Yeah, you get two books for one. Yes, that's the one I want. I mean, that's at least 1500 articles for me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Nick, I I knew about the book. In fact, I, I, I. I, I read an early version of it. I haven't finished it because it's a week by week thing. But but uh, I'm sorry, I, I completely forgot that you start every post which you do with a quote. <laughs> so yeah. there you go. You you, you found that life. Yeah, that's uh, so, that's, so, uh, that's very Bill, You know, one one final question. I I have one. Um, Bill, you uh, in your career, you have you met any uh, interesting characters? I'm I'm curious. You know, there. There are some charismatic people in insurance. 
uh, Warren Buffett, uh, Maurice Greenberg. Uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, have you have you been able to cross paths with some of these people, and what are they like? You know, I, I've not met a lot of the the, the big name people. I, I, most of my uh, my experience has been behind the scenes. Uh, I've met a lot of interesting people over the years and, and had some interesting experiences, but uh, we would have to discuss those in private over a, a cold Paps Blue Ribbon or something. <laughs> I will say for, um, for, for the Greenberg reference that uh, Insurance Journal did a poll uh, several years ago uh, about the most influential person in the insurance industry, and he came in second. Who came in first was the Big Eye Virtual University, which was a complete surprise to me because I figured they people thought I probably got folks. I didn't even know that the, the survey was going on, but we had such a loyal readership that people actually went in and, and a uh, talk about technology, a website, one most influential person in the industry. That's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's awesome. Uh, earlier, you mentioned the dress code and, and the, the hat that was required. You said you had a story when it comes to, to, to the dress code. Oh. So let's finish up with the, with the story. Well, I was uh, one of the things I'm doing in retirement is me and some guys are putting together a band. And uh, the last time I played in a band was 1973 <laughs> in college. And 73 was the culmination of three and a half years without a haircut. So when I started work full-time with ISO, I was assigned to their Memphis, Tennessee office. And the assistant manager came to visit the week that I started there. And I hadn't cut my hair in three and a half years. So he didn't say a word about that. He noticed that I didn't have a hat. And we had a dress code that said when you went out in public, you had to wear a coat and a, a hat. So he said, you need to go out and get a hat. So I left the office. I went to an Army surplus store, and I got a drill instructor's hat. You've ever seen what those things <laughs> are? And I came back with it on, and he looked at it and just stared at me and said, uh, that won't get it. He says, go out and buy a real hat, like a business hat. <laughs> And so I was leaving, and he said, and while you're out there, get a haircut. So... I got a hat, a real hat and a haircut, and they, they changed the the dress code the next year, so I never really wore the hat very often. And I bet oh. I, and I bet you never apologized. Didn't, no way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bill, I, I don't know if you, if you can see the, the webcam, uh, but I, I'm working on, on the long hair about, about five months now, but now when people ask about the long hair, I'll, I'll, I'll be like, Bill Wilson started it years ago. This fight's for him. <laughs> well, I tell you, my, uh, one of the things about getting old is my, my barber just retired, my barber of 38 years. So I went for about three months without getting a haircut, and it, it drove me crazy. So I finally went to a local, a local barber shop with the old barber pole out front, and the guy scouted me. I mean, I, I look uh, – uh, well, I look like a, a character out of, uh, out of the uh, – what was that George Clooney – a bluegrass mo movie. Can't, I don't know. No. Anyway, <laughs> I'll have to look it up, but I, I look like somebody who just came out of the hills for the first time. Anyway. Bill, Bill yeah. you wouldn't, you wouldn't happen to have a photo of Bill Wilson, 1973 that we could add to the show notes. Would you? You know, I, I'll, uh, 
I'll look. I don't know if I have. I have one where my hair was longer, not one where it was down past my shoulders. But I'll I'll see what I can dig up. I'll I might send you my one of my college pictures where I've got longer hair. Anyway. Your your fans are requesting it. All right. Yeah, we, we we would love to 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 have that. Uh, All right. So thank you very much, both of you, for your time. And hopefully it's not the last time that you join us for our podcast. And we look forward to continue reading your post on LinkedIn and on your insurance commentary and wherever else you might start popping up in. So thank you very much for your time and, and have a great rest of the week. Thanks to you guys. Had fun. Congratulations, Bill. Thank you. Feel like happiness is the truth.